0: Hi everyone, my name is Kathleen McLean. I'm a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario in the Department of Public Programming and Learning, and I'm really pleased to welcome you all here tonight for a conversation, Big Lonely Doug, with Harley Rustat and Serene Fox. Um, Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge where we are in territory and in community. The Art Gallery of Ontario operates on land that has been a site of human activity for over 15,000 years. The land is the territory of the Anishinaabe Nation and was the territory of the Huron-Wendat, Neutral, and Seneca nations the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, the Three Fires Confederacy, to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Toronto is also governed by a treaty between the federal government of Canada and the Mississaugas of the New Credit Anishinaabe Nation and has always been a trading center for First Nations. So, welcome. Um, I'm really, uh, before I introduce Serene Fox, who's going to start us off, I'd like to thank Harley for agreeing to come and be a part of this conversation. We are selling his book at the back of the room. He's also agreed to sign books. I've read the book. I think it's a wonderful gift, either for yourself or your loved ones. Um, I'd like to thank uh, his publisher, House of Anansi and the Walrus Books for their participation, and a small shout out for Another Story Bookshop, who is selling back there, thank you, Another Story, Um, of the same name, the Anthropocene. And Big Lonely Doug exists in real life in British Columbia, but there's an augmented reality version of Big Lonely Doug in the Art Gallery of Ontario's Galleria Italia, which is our second floor space on the other side of the building. If you haven't had a chance to see it, um, all you need to do is Download an app or borrow a friend who has already downloaded the Avara app to view an augmented reality version of Big Lonely Doug. It's cool and a fun thing to do. Um, so, without further ado, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Serene Fox. Serene is an Indigenous multidisciplinary activist and spokesperson and dancer of Anishinaabe heritage who has used dance to create meaningful dialogue between her Indigenous community and settler communities. In fact. Is it correct you're doing that today? Yeah, Yeah, and all week, she's been doing that all week. Um, She's also the host of Viceland, the Viceland show Rise, which takes her to North American indigenous communities fighting to protect their homelands, co-host of APTN's Future History, where she seeks out those who are harnessing indigenous knowledge to gain a deeper understanding of what it means to have an indigenous worldview. She's also the host of AGO's recently launched Into the Anthropocene, our Impact on Earth podcast, an episode podcast series that you can find wherever you find podcasts um, where art and science collide. Pro tip, episode six uh, features Harley and Big Lonely Doug and it's being released on October 30th. So, Serene's gonna introduce Harley, Harley's gonna read, they're gonna talk, books at the back. Um, I'm excited. I think we can get started. Please join me in welcoming Serene.
1: Thank you so much. I always find it so hard to, to listen to those bios, so Harley, here we go. <laughs> this is the way I have to introduce myself. So Bojo, waban and Queen, and Queen Dow, and Donjibani, so So I've also read this book, and I can't wait to talk with Harley and you guys about it. So Harley Rustad is an editor at the Walrus magazine. He has written for Outside the Globe and Mail. Um, outside the Globe and Mail, Geographico, and ooh, this is too close to me and CNN. Uh, he is a faculty editor at the BAM Center's Mountain and Wilderness Writing Residency and a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. And he's originally from Salt Spring Island, but lucky enough, he lives in Toronto now. So, chi miiguch, Harley, again, for being here and to everyone who is here with us. And um, Harley's gonna come up and give us a reading um, of an excerpt from the book, so. It's a great way to start us off. Welcome, Harley.
2: Uh, Thank you, everyone, for coming and spending Friday with us. Um, I just want to point out the beautiful wood that we're surrounded by. It's um, Douglas Fir from the West Coast. Not Big Lonely Doug. Um, thank you, Sirene, and thank you, Kathleen, and everyone at the AGO. I'm just going to start by reading, uh, starting at the beginning, uh, chapter one. And this chapter is called The Ribbon. On a cool morning in the winter of 2011, Dennis Cronin parked his truck by the side of a dirt logging road, laced up his spike-soled cor- a cork boots, put on his red cargo vest, an orange hard hat, and stepped into the trees. He had a job to do, walk a stand of old growth forest and flag it for clear cutting. In many ways, this patch of forest was unremarkable. Cronin had spent four decades traipsing through tens of thousands of similar hectares of lush British Columbia rainforest and had stood under hundreds of giant ancient trees. Over his career in the logging industry, he had seen the seemingly inexhaustible resource of big timber continue to dwindle and the unbroken evergreen that once covered Vancouver Island reduced to rare and isolated groves. Known as Cutblock 7190 by his employer, one of the largest timber companies operating in the island, the 12 hectares represent, represented a small sliver around the size of 12 football fields of the kind of old growth forest that once spanned the island nearly from tip to tip and coast to coast. But the small patch of trees fringing the left bank of the Gordon River, just north of the small seaside town of Port Renfrew, was a prime example of an endangered ecosystem. Black bears and elk, wolves and cougars passed quietly under its canopy. Red-capped woodpeckers knocked on standing deadwood. Squirrels and chipmunks nibbled on cones to extract seeds. And fungi the size of dinner plates protruded from trunks of some of the largest trees in the world. Cronin brushed through the salal and fern undergrowth, his jeans wet with dew that even during the hot summer forms every morning in these forests of perpetual damp. Underfoot, mounds of moss covered a thick bed of decaying tree needles were soft and spongy absorbed by thicket and peat and mist before they're allowed to swell. For now, the forest was still. Cronin began the survey along the low edge of Cut Block 7190, where he could hear the Gordon River thundering on the other side of a steep gorge. Come spring, salmon fry would be wriggling free of the pebbled bottom and making their first swim downstream to open water. Come fall, mature fish would hurl themselves upstream to spawn. The ancient trees, with their dense tangle of roots, growing along the banks of the river would filter out sediment and loose soil so that even during a rainstorm, the forest kept the waters running clear. As a forest engineer, Cronin's job involved walking the contours of the cut block, taking stock of the timber and producing a map for the fallers to follow. At regular intervals of a couple dozen metres or so, he reached into his vest pocket for a roll of neon neon orange plastic ribbon and tore off a strip. The colour had to be bright, to catch the eye of the fallers who would follow in the weeks or months to come. He tied the inch-wide sashes around small trees or low-hanging branches of hemlocks or cedars to mark the edges of the cut block. Falling boundary was repeated along each ribbon. Timber companies in the province follow a forest code, forestry code stipulating that forest engineers must leave, an, must leave an intact buffer of 50 meters up from a river, especially one that is known to be a spawning ground for salmon. Some engineers keep tight to those regulations to try to extract as much timber as possible from a given area. Known as timber pigs, they work the bush under a singular mantra, log it, burn it, pave it. The sentiment is twofold. Ecology is secondary to economics, and these forests exist to be harvested. But Cronin was often generous with these buffer zones, leaving 60 or 70 meters, as much as he could without drawing the ire of coworkers or bosses. There were trees of every age a handful of exceptionally large cedars and firs, many young and thinner hemlocks, and saplings filling in the gaps. The sun broke through the canopy in long beams that spotlit sword ferns and huckleberry bushes on the forest floor. Patches of lime green moss turned highlighter fluorescent in the sun. Scattered clouds broke an unusually clear blue sky. Cronin was more used to working amid thick mist and showers on winter days, emerging from a forest soaked and chilled. Once the boundary of the 12 hectares was flagged with orange ribbon, Cronin crisscrossed the cut block, surveying the pitches and gradients of the land. It was a slow task, clambering over slippery fallen logs and through thickets of bush. At one point, he climbed up on a log to determine where a road could be plowed into the forest. In many cut blocks, the first step in harvesting the timber is to construct a road, a channel through the bush where logs can be hauled, loaded onto trucks, and transported to a mill. It takes a specific skill to see through a dense forest and the haphazard undergrowth and plot a sure course that will allow for the safest and easiest extraction of logs. Maneuvering over undulating land layered with dead fallen vegetation, Cronin marked a direct line through the forest with strips off another roll of ribbon, this one hot pink, and marked with the words road location. He traversed any creek he came across and flagged it with red ribbon. When the flagging was done, the green and brown grove was lit up with flashes of foreign color. As Cronin waded through the thigh high undergrowth, Something caught his eye. A Douglas fir, larger than the rest, with a trunk so wide he could have hidden his truck behind it. He scrambled up the mound of slough bark and dead needles that had accumulated around the base of the giant tree. Dennis Cronin looked up. The tree dominated the forest, a monarch of its species. Its crown of dark green, glossy needles flitted in the breeze well above the canopy of the forest. Like many of the oldest Douglas firs he had come across in his career, the tree's trunk was limbless until a great height. The species often loses its lower branches that grow in the shadow of the forest canopy. Many of these large old Douglas firs have clear marks of disease, with trunks that are twisted and gnarled. This tree's trunk sported few knots and a grain that appeared straight. It was a wonderful specimen of timber, Cronin thought. With his handheld held hypsometer, a device to measure this, a standing tree's height, using, using a triangulation of measurements, Cronin took readings from the base of the top of the tree and estimated its stature at approximately 70 metres, around the height of a 20-storey apartment building. Using a tape, he measured the tree's circumference at 11.91 metres, calculated the diameter to be 3.79 metres. If failed and loaded onto a train, the log would be wider than an oil tank car. The tree appeared just shy of the Red Creek fir, the largest Douglas fir in the world, located a couple of valleys away. Cronin didn't know it then, he had not only stumbled upon one of the largest trees he had ever seen in his career, he had found one of the largest trees in the country. It was surely ancient as well, Cronin knew. A Douglas fir of such height and girth, growing in a wet valley bottom on Vancouver Island, could easily prove half a millennium in age. But to the experienced forester, this one looked much older. A thousand years, he wondered. The logger could have moved on. He could have brushed his broad shoulders past yet another broad trunk and continued through the forest leaving the giant fir to its fate. He could have walked through the undergrowth across log and stream to finish the job of mapping and flagging the cut block. Fallers would have arrived. The tree would have been brought down in a thunderclap heard kilometers away, hauled from the valley, loaded onto logging trucks, and taken to a mill to be broken down into its most useful and most valuable parts. Over 40 years working on timber hauling crews and as a forest engineer, Cronin had accrued countless days working in the forest of Vancouver Island. He had encountered thousands of enormous trees over his career. But under this one, he lingered. He walked around its circumference, running a trunk so broad and straight it would hold some of the finest and most uh, valued timber on the coast. Instead of moving on, Cronin reached into his pocket uh, for a ribbon he rarely used, tore off a strip, and wrapped it around the base of the Douglas Fir's trunk. The tape wasn't pink or orange or red, but green. And along its length, were the words, leave.
1: Thank you so much for that. This is this awkward moment where I do this. Oh. <laughs> sorry. Don't be sorry. <laughs> I believe that only happened because we talked about it happening just before we got on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Harley. Um, I have to say, I, I consider myself an environmentalist, an activist, and still, when I read this book, there was so much that I didn't know. Um, so many um, alarming facts um, about not only our country's sort of uh, mandate in terms of um, logging in the industry, but particularly in BC, um, and actually how little is being done and how lack um, our, our policies are in protecting these forests. So all that stuff aside, I think we should start with where you're from and why that has affected your desire to write about Doug.
2: Um, as it was mentioned, I'm from, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, from Salt Spring Island, which, um, for those who might not know, it's this little island nestled between, uh, Vancouver Island and the mainland, and, uh, one of the Gulf Islands. And my parents moved there in 1980, and, um, I think as I've mentioned a few times before, um, I spent the first couple months in a tent before my parents finished our house, and, and so it quite literally grew up, uh, among these trees. Uh, and spent so much of my childhood climbing in them and and building forts in them and everything. So they're really, really intimately tied to them. And my dad was so good at at teaching me um, their value. And it started off with just recognizing which one was which. And, and the dedication to the book is to my dad for teaching me how to name them. And um, so much of that started from just knowing which tree is which. And it sounds kind of funny, but um, even that basic understanding our basic relationship with trees can spawn so much and I felt like everything kind of came from just being able to recognize that there is a difference and there's a, a unique part to every single one of them um, so that's kind of where it started and uh as a really young kid and then in middle school uh, I had this great like really strong environmentalist teacher in grade seven who took us to anti-logging protests and took us on on a, a camping trip, uh, overnight camping trip to Carmana Valley, which is uh, was the site of one of the sites of the war in the woods, which is this uh, large battle between the loggers and, and activists in the late 80s and early 90s uh, that brought the attention of the world onto this issue. Uh, at that time, boardwalks were brand new. And so to be immersed into Uh, which on the surface was a wildly successful environmental story where this battle was won, um, and the the trees were saved, uh, sparked something in me. Um, And a lot of my interest in the forest, a lot of my interest in the logging, and my curiosity with seeing this tree, um, and why it would be left standing, started from those interactions that I had as a kid.
1: Mm -hmm. Cheers to good teachers, hey?
2: Yeah, totally. (laughs)
1: At the base of Doug. Mm -hmm. That was the first day you saw saw So that,
2: yeah, that was September uh, 2015. Um, And uh, I had met, so how the whole thing started is I kind of came across this picture, a a similar picture of a single tree left standing in a cut block. And you can tell it's big. Um, And I had seen so many images of forests, of old growth forests in BC. They're, you know, immensely beautiful with, you know, uh, black bears kind of lumbering through the trees and cougars and bald eagles and all this stuff. And and so you see that on the one hand is is the pristine, untouched, beautiful landscape. And then I saw tons of pictures of clear-cut logging, um, tons of footage of that, and it's devastating and heartbreaking and gray. And this was something that straddled this border. Uh, it was different. Um, not only was it one tree left standing, but it just emoted emotion. Like it was... Uh, immediately you, ha- you have to feel kind of sad, you have to feel kind of angry why this one tree, why this one giant tree was left standing, and who did it, and can I find the guy who did it? So, I hadn't actually found the guy who, Dennis Cronin, uh, who, I, who I mentioned in, in chapter one. Um, I, at this point, I had just gone with this young activist who uh, had started promoting the tree and using it as an icon for this organization that he was running called the an- Ancient Forest Alliance. Uh, which is this pro-old-growth organization based out of Victoria. And he is, he's a big character in the book, and uh, this incredibly devoted uh, 20-something guy who's been, again, like me, kind of grew up in these forests, but just has devoted his entire life to helping save them, through photography mainly, and through his activism. And so we, yeah, we hopped in his van and drove out there, and it was one of those perfect West Coast days. You can kind of see it, you can see the mist, it's all blues and greens, and misty, and, and, and it's one of those times where, you know, you walk through the forest and you don't really know what's gonna be around the next corner. And I kind of mentioned this in the book, I don't know whether or not there's gonna be a cougar around that bend that you can't see, or whether or not you're gonna find one of the tallest trees in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of curiosity spurred TJ on, and, and kind of brought me there with him. And, and so yeah, we spent the whole day hiking through this cut block that's next door to Big Lonely Doug that is still standing. The activists call it Eden Grove, um, and but it's flagged and ready to come down at any moment. Um, and so we kind of entered from the green and crossed over into the cup block and then slowly approached the tree and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger above uh, above you and taller and taller. And It's a pretty dramatic thing and I was completely uh, smitten at that point with it and, and really really wanted to find the guy. Interesting because
1: I totally feel you on just like the impact of this tree. And when I turned to um, the photographs of the aerial view, mm-hmm. um, you know, as an indigenous person, I always grew up with this worldview that the trees aren't just standing in the forest, that they're in direct relationship, not only with us, but with the rest of their relatives in the forest. And I was so struck. Um, and I love the title of the book, because that that's what occurred to me, is that there was this... Um, Ah, well, the hypocrisy really of saving one tree in the middle of this cut block. I, and that's, I, you know, I feel all of the emotion that it was and saved, but like yeah. all of its brothers and sisters, and this is probably like a, definitely a grandmother, a grandfather mm-hmm. tree. Or,
2: and um, that, that was the, uh, one of the things that I was so curious about was, was, you know, this wasn't an activist, it wasn't like Carmana. it wasn't people blockading roads and protesting that turned this thing into an icon and saved this tree. It was completely counterintuitive. Somebody whose entire career and entire job is devoted to bringing them down. And he decided in this kind of green moment to not bring this one down towards the end of his It's
1: important to talk about Dennis because I think people would be so alarmed to to look at him, and he's not an activist. He's a logger. He's taken down thousands, if not millions, of trees over his career. But he saved Big Lonely Doug. He,
2: he came out. He was a uh, late in, in his eight, 18 or so when he came out. Uh, grew up in, in southern Ontario, and then moved to BC, kind of under the lure of big timber. Like there was, it was really was a, a green gold rush at that time, uh, in the 70s, and and you could go and and not quite stake your claim but you could get a job and you, it was almost like going and working in the rigs uh, now and make a lot of money, it was tough work, but you could make a lot of money doing that mm-hmm. on the backs of big timber. Um, so he eventually settled in, in Lake Cowichan, uh, which is a small community that, similar to Port Renfrew and so many communities on Vancouver Island, are every single person there is somehow tied to, to these trees and to bringing them down. So there's truck drivers and there's loggers and there's engineers and managers and everything, and mill workers, um, and so he found this incredible community and a job that he loved. He loved the bush. He loved these forests. He loved the mountains. He loved the animals. He was so knowledgeable, uh, like he could put an ecologist to shame uh, for how he could interact and describe with the, describe these forests and his knowledge of the plants and and the seasons, observations about this cut block that. You know the act, the act, or the uh, ecologists were, were kind of struggling to match. Mm-hmm. So I really found that fascinating. How is it someone who loves the this landscape, loves these trees so much, and yet, you know, his job was to was to take them down. Um, but he switched. So he started as a as what's called a hook tender, which is someone who works in a hauling crew. So the fallers will come in, cut all the trees down, all the trees drop. They and the hook tenders come and and. You, essentially hook them up and haul them up to the trucks. And, you know, he, he was getting a bit older and he decided he wanted to work in the forest that he loved, not in the cut blocks that were, were much more challenging. So he, f- for the last sort of 15 years of his career, worked only in forest, only in intact forest. So he would go in, flag the forest as I described, and then leave. And sometimes he would come back, um, you really see that. Uh, so I really found that that tension, and I explore that a bit in the book, of within him, you know, how is it that someone who spent, you know, moved across the country, uh, built his family around these trees and and timber, uh, and yet loved them so much, and then did this one uh, quite startling act um, of preservation. Uh, I found so much tension in that um, juxtaposition. Yeah,
1: Yeah. And there's this lovely part in the book, too, where you talk about... um, like you really portray his love for the forest where he would spend all of his spare time yeah. and spontaneously jump in his truck with his family or his wife and show hi- show her the latest gnarly tree he had found or yeah. a bear's den. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting because I think um, I run into that even in, in my work where it's you know often the people working in industry there's a, an inner conflict in them as well because they are so knowledgeable but the idea of survival is often on the plate. So I think it's important for people to see that, I think, as well, and to think about activism from that place, because that's a more real and honest place to look at it, because there's two sides to this story, right?
2: Well, there is, and, and I think um, he sort of represents someone... When you think of loggers, quite often we just think that they're all bad, and they're all, you know, how could you do this? How could you destroy this landscape? Um, and I really, when I wrote the, f- the first article for The Walrus uh, a couple, couple years before the book came out, mm-hmm. um, the best feedback I got was from people in the timber industry. It wasn't from the environmentalists and my neighbours on Salt Spring. It was from, this, um, it wasn't sort of screaming. I didn't want to write something that was screaming green mm. from that side. I wanted to give each person and each perspective a voice in that, whether that was the timber companies who don't typically get a fair shake um, and the loggers who don't typically get a fair judgment, um, and First Nations who have a, a, I found a very surprising relationship with the forest, mm-hmm. um, and the activists and the businesses and all these different players, um, I really tried to give them as much voice as I could, but, uh, I think for, for most of it, the loggers don't get that, they don't have a very good reputation, yeah. um, and, uh, he, he changed that. He changed that for me a lot. Yeah.
1: I mean, I grew up with the the movie Ferngully. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and and that's really where I've my heart's always been. And I think I, I mean, I. It's hard because I love this room. Look around. This room is gorgeous, Um, but I love trees standing more. So I think that conflict exists. You mentioned the ancient forest alliance, um, and I found it shocking that there isn't a wider consensus on what old growth is. Um, those kinds of facts, and, and the descriptions, and um, how loggers are, are made to look at these trees as well as the government, was that alarming to you?
2: I was surprised that there was no agreed upon, I kind of assumed I knew what an old growth forest was, and uh, came into with, with um, uh, an image of what I thought it was, being from out there and, and having hiked through so many of these, I, was, I knew that was an old growth forest, that was a second growth forest, that's, cut, that's a cut block, uh, but it just got, it was way, way more complicated than I thought it was uh, initially. Um, and so there are some definitions, but nobody can agree upon it because everybody wants to create the definitions that best suit their agenda. So the activists will say, you know, uh, on the coast, you know, forests of a certain age, about 250 years and older, uh, are considered old-growth forests, whereas the, the timber companies will sort of split it, and 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 they'll say, well, no, this, there's, there might be... Old-growth trees within that forest, but the entire forest isn't old-growth because there's a lot of younger trees there. So they will they will find any definition that they can split, uh, so they don't kind of draw the ire of of um, you know uh, observers or or activists or anybody. Um, and and even like the, there's like 800 different definitions globally of what a forest is. Like how can we make any policies? It just makes that part of it so so difficult. Um, and there was some really fascinating tactics that the logging companies used to, to um, broaden that definition of old growth so that when the activists say there's 5%, around 5%, maybe a little bit more, 5 or 6% of the of remaining high productivity old growth forests on bank around, that's it. That's left, like 5 or 6%. Um, the loggers, logging companies will say, no, there's 25% because they include these like high altitude like bog forests that have no value to them. So they'll include everything that they can to try to make it sound not as bad as it, the reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the activists are really fighting for is, was that, you know, it was that kind of forest where the biggest trees in the country grow. Uh, As one activist told me, it's the cherry on the cake. And we're down to the last, last little, little bit of it.
1: Did you find it hard to dive into these trees and look at them for so many days, I'm sure, as something that just holds Commercial value.
2: I mean, va- value was—that's a good question because value was one of the themes that emerged in the book. All, how all those players that I mentioned, all those different groups—activists and timber workers and First Nations and businesses and uh, politicians and communities—how do they, when they see this picture, when they see the picture of a single tree, or they look at a picture of a forest, what do they see? What kind of value do they uh, pull out of that, out of that forest or out of that tree? And I found that so fascinating that that some of them were overlapping, and there were these really kind of unlikely alliances between activists and old union company, uh, old unions, um, that I found quite surprising. Um, some of them overlapped, and some of them didn't, and some of them were at odds. and And I think a lot of people might assume that on the West Coast, uh, a lot of the First Nations will be allied with the envir- with the activists and the environmentalists, but it was not as simple as that. It was not as black and white, and uh, a good example of that was the Pachydat, which is the the First Nation uh, around Port Renfrew. Their, their traditional territories extend quite a large, quite a large area around uh, the town of Port Renfrew and 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 uh, the port there, including Big Only Dog. And they uh, have a quite a small on-reserve population of a, a few hundred people, and they had they support what the activists are doing to a certain extent, but they also, you know, as uh, I was talking with them. Really wanted, most importantly, was the future of their kids and their people who are living on uh, on the territory right now. Um, and so they st- opened a mill uh, about a year and a half ago when I was out there reporting the book. And all of the activists freaked out. And like one of them had set up a meeting with with Jeff Jones, who's the, the chief of the Apache, Dat, and and he and the activist thought that he was going to come and show him this beautiful old-growth forest, and they were going to do this tour of the old-growth forest. No, I want to come and show you my mill. I'm gonna, and he got there, and there were enormous, enormous old-growth cedars cut down, being milled. And on the one hand, you think, that's bad, right? Those old-growth cedars, are so few of them left, it's so sad. But can you fault anybody? They've been working in those forests for a heck of a lot longer than any commercial enterprise has, uh, managing those forests for a heck of a lot longer. Can we criticize or can we even comment when they are most concerned with the future of their kids and their and the immediate needs of their of their their population? Uh, and so I found that was so interesting was looking at splitting the values and seeing who overlapped, who was at odds, and uh, like who were shaking hands and who were putting on a brave face. And um, so that was one of the themes that emerged. And so yeah, the, the value. Yeah.
1: I'm really glad that you mentioned um, the pachydat, that's how I say it, yeah, pachydat? Yeah. yeah. Um, because I think that's a conversation that so many people sort of don't get to have or they're very uncomfortable having is the idea of economy, uh, especially amongst First Nations. And I think the missing link there is that settler's communities have often gone in and been a part of the extractive industry for you know, almost a century now or, um, and have really reaped all the benefit of having access, um, and yet when First Nations people try to jump in on the very end when it's almost gone, mm-hmm. um, that they often get target targeted, and I think that it's important to to really see that um, and to acknowledge that. I'm. What if they were able to be a part of that this whole time? Would yeah. selective cutting been more of an option? Would they be at the brink? Yeah. They're really jumping in when there is almost nothing left, and when their communities are suffering. Um, and I just I think it's a valuable place, um, and it's actually the quote I was looking for, so th- thank you for reading oh my yeah. mind. <laughs> the other thing that I was looking for in the book that it's beautiful, I have it dog-eared, so let me just find it. It's about the definition of forests and the naming of forests, um, and I thought it was a really beautiful um, way to bring it up in the book because, well, here it is. I know it, so it's about naming forests by activists because the indigenous people Mm. have been working these forests for thousands of years, if not since the very beginning. And so when activists come in and rename um, for the purpose, even to save the trees, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of conversation about that and a lot of mixed feelings. And what was it like to run into that and to to have that be a part of the conversation as
2: well? I mean, you're you're absolutely right. There's a lot of tension over that. I mean, for as long as uh, Europeans have been on this continent, we've done a very, very good/slash bad job of just naming everything. And there's so much uh, uh, tension wrapped up in in uh, colonists coming and and saying we're going to call this, you know, Port Elizabeth or whatever, or Port San Juan, which is the port near uh, near uh, uh, Port Renfrew. Port Renfrew named after the Baron Renfrew. Um, and there's just there's so much tension wrapped up in that and i guess i was a little bit surprised that the activists were kind of continuing on with that trend Mm um i got why they did it because uh avatar grove is another uh protected area Mm -hmm. um it's not quite a park but it's it's a tourist destination and it was sort of the flagship forest of, of the ancient forest alliance it's a beautiful incredible there's these amazing uh really burly cedars there uh, one of them is the gnarliest tree in Canada, yeah. And uh, whatever, Yeah, yeah. And it's beautiful, but so they called it Avatar Grove, and it, it was it was discovered. Another word that's very complicated. Um, in 2009, when Avatar was coming out, and the activists realized that okay, maybe these trees look like the home tree in the movie in, in Avatar, and uh, and so maybe we can piggyback on some of the attention. Avatar has all these environmental themes. Big industry coming in and destroying uh, beautiful nature, um, and we can piggyback off of off of the success of one of the most popular and successful movies ever. So they named it Avatar Grove. They, uh, in one of their marches in Vancouver, they dressed up as n- the Navi people, like they painted themselves blue and walked down the streets of Vancouver. They invited James Cameron to one of their la- to the, one of their uh, rallies. He didn't come. Um, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I get why they do it, because it's, on one hand, it's a very clever thing to do. Yeah. Uh, you, there's a lot of people who wouldn't care about a forest that's called, um, you know, Forest 1, or just like, yeah. you know, or Cut Block, or cut block <laughs> 7190. Like, nobody, it doesn't resonate at all. You call something Avatar Grove, every newspaper is calling them and talking about it. And you dress up like a blue person, like a blue alien, and like you're going to get coverage, and so there's a lot that can be attributed to the success of Avatar Grove, the the reason why it was saved and protected and turned into an old growth management area, this, this protected space, because purely because of that name, mm-hmm. um, Big Lonely Doug, you know, there's if you had just called it. Um, it actually has a name now. It's like REC 173479, I think it is, yeah. which is like the designation for a recreational site. And like who's ever gonna remember that and who's ever gonna go and keep REC whatever company, right? So like there's so much, I get why the activists do it. Yeah, of course. Um, and they've even employed some more interesting ones uh, where they named a grove, the Christy Clark grove, yeah. uh, named after the uh, Liberal Party, former, Liber- uh, former leader in BC. Who was no fan of the trees, I should say. Uh, no fan of the trees. Well, yeah, of breathing. <laughs> um, so they they named it after her, which actually was an old tactic that many environmentalists had used that dates back uh, decades um, to try to force the person's the politician's hand. If you're named after it, you're not going to cut down your your namesake tree, right? Like, well, I, I would. would hope I would not. probably go and fight for the Harley Grove, right? Like, yeah. I think everyone would. Um, and, but it, it didn't work, it didn't resonate. No one really cared, she didn't care, and so now they renamed it Eden Grove, and that's the one that's right next to Big Lonely Doug. And mm-hmm. So sometimes it works really well, and sometimes it doesn't work. Um, but in that, in coming in, a bunch of activists uh, from the city coming up, and uh, enclosing a space, discovering something, and calling it by a Western name, uh, is very, very complicated, and I, and, you know, one of the quotes from one of the uh, representatives from the Apache that was like, it's like straight-up colonialism. Like, they're just, they're coming in, and that's what they're doing. They're renaming these places. We've known about these trees, you know. Um, you know, Dennis Cronin, T.J. Watt is the photographer who took this picture, who uh, who's that young activist I mentioned, uh, who's the guy who found the tree after it was cut and then took all the pictures and marketed it. He wasn't the first person to see that tree. Dennis Cronin was not the first person to see that tree. Um, I kind of, I think I I think I found one of the first people to see it, who's who's alive right now, who's this young, um, he's from a house at uh, up near Tofino, the nation up in, near Tofino, but he's living in Port Renfrew now. And he went in as part of this culturally modified tree team where they go in to find any culturally modified trees, which are trees that have any kind of indigenous um, markings on them. So up. A cedar strip tree or anything with um, like sometimes they'll carve out a hole to kind of test the the cedar and the quality of the tree to turn it into canoe or or something and so they'll go in and, and see if there's any of these culturally modified trees and mark them and he walked under this tree 100%. Uh he, it just didn't register as anything important to him because the big Douglas firs aren't as as important as the big cedars and and he's like yeah I'm sure I walked under it but I don't know and so like there's, by naming them, we're, we're, we're kind of erasing a bit of that history and, and a bit of that relationship that uh, the First Nations have, people have had for, for a long, long time. Um, and so on the one hand, I get it as an, as an activist tactic, but on the other hand, uh, they have to be very careful. And, and when they make, even now, the, the, these, or, these organizations have kind of changed their tactics a little bit. They don't use the word, the D word anymore Um, Discovered
1: (laughs) the D word. I love Uh,
2: it. (laughs) No, because it's just it's so it's so fraud. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, On the on the subject of culturally modified trees, I also thought it's it's important to note that um, First Nations people quite often, even when they were harvesting um, cedars to make dugout canoes, is that they would actually leave the tree standing. Um, And it's fun for me to read these kinds of facts because science is now often backing up Indigenous knowledge, but. Um, the root systems continue to go to feed and they continue to talk and continue to nurture the rest of the environment in the forest so even harvesting what you need and leaving it to stand I mean often big cedars heal mm-hmm. and continue to support what i say their ancestors in the forest and there's an interesting quotes and nurse logs for other species and so even a fallen tree even the under species of the forest is a is a whole ecosystem in itself
2: and that and that's some really really fascinating science that um has started kind of started to come out in in the 90s and and it's still ongoing and and uh about the interconnectivity in these forests and it's it's pretty remarkable uh, i mean speaking of avatar it's like something out of a science fiction movie um and fern Gully, and like so you have these trees um that there's this great, uh, uh, well-known uh, scientist based at UBC called uh, Dr. Suzanne Samard, mm-hmm. and she's been at the forefront of some of this research and, um, and helped kind of, uh, I was about to use the D word. Uh, helped <laughs> uh, t- wrote a bunch of papers about the mycorrhizal network, which is I really like. I was about it. To say discovered. <laughs> no,
1: I really like it. Thank you. It's yeah. like my
2: what's called the the mycorrhizal network, which is this uh, fungal network that connects the roots of these trees together. Uh, and what she found in her research, uh, it's really, really fascinating how she did it. They would uh, expose the one tree to a radioactive isotope, a harmless radioactive isotope, that the tree would photosynthesize and then, and then turn into sugars, and the sugars would descend down the trunk. And they could take a Geiger counter and, and follow, essentially follow, the, the radioactive particles. And what they did is they found that some of these big Douglas firs, you know, you called them like ancestors and grandfathers and grandmothers. And it's not, you know, yes, we are personifying them, but it's not that far of a, it's not that bad a personification. Um, One of of these trees was found connected to 47 other trees in its neighborhood. And what they're doing is, uh, it's much more collaborative than we thought. Mm -hmm. Um, They are quite literally supporting the young around them. So a big tree like Big Lonely Doug, who's had its crown sticking up a, uh, out of the canopy for forever uh, for a long time could be could have been connected to so many trees around it young saplings that are struggling to grow or trees that are aren 't getting enough sunlight is quite literally feeding them and supporting them um, and that 's a really really fascinating interconnectivity uh, there 's a whole other layer of communication they can do they can warn each other uh, with pests and drought and all sorts of things and and so there 's this you know, when you look at a, an image like this, yes, it's on the surface very sad because it, it, you know, it's one tree left standing. But it's also underground an entire network that has been severed, and it takes a long time. Um, they don't actually know how long it takes for this mycorrhizal network to reestablish in a cut block, um, but it's it's a long. T- I mean, it takes a long time for these trees to regrow uh, to any sizable uh, degree. Um, so, we're talking decades and decades and decades before, before any of this gets even partially reestablished. Um, so, we, even that image, it's a lonely tree, but it's much lonelier than even the image uh, portrays.
1: And I think often we talk about cut blocks and, and the um, regrowth and the replanting that is mandatory, um, but it's planted all at once. Um, And even T.J. Watt talks about how when he goes to go find these trees and um, how you can always see new growth. Um, And it almost is just like, it's just one even versity at all.
2: No, and you can can spot uh, the old growth forest, because as you said, there's all this variation in height and there's these old trees, uh, they're called candelabra tops, the old dead cedars that stick up and they look like a crown, they look like a turret. and they're the markers of, of old-growth forests, really, uh, from afar. But yeah, the, the second-growth forests, they all get planted at the same time, so they all grow in unison. And there's this great uh, quote that an ecologist told me that in a second-growth forest, a deer would have to pack a lunch. <laughs> and th- basically, because the trees all grow in unison, the canopy is even very little light uh, permeates down to the forest floor. So you don't get that diverse uh, understory that you do in old-growth forests. Uh, it's when you walk into in Eden Grove, if you would kind of turn around from this image, um, the still intact portion of, of that cut block, uh, down uh, and expose it, expose the sunlight, um, and you get so much more variation in huckleberry bushes and ferns and fungi and, and everything. Um, and that's the big, big difference is, you know, I mentioned the sound uh, excuse me you mentioned the sound in in chapter one and and how it disappears, and it, it's true It's very very quiet in there It's like hauntingly quiet mm-hmm. and then you walk into a second growth forest and you're like a kid stomping around and everything is snapping and everything is is breaking under your foot Because um, there's it there's just it's completely completely different ecosystem there um, and You know a deer would have to pack a lunch like there's just very very little for a deer to survive on uh, in there in those forests and um it's, it's dramatic. I hired this guy to kind of fly over and do this buzz over Big, big Only Dug. And, and you fly over Vancouver Island, and you see a ton of trees. Um, and then it takes a little bit, and once you kind of figure it out, you realize that almost every single tree that you're seeing has been replanted by human hands. And that's a, that was a dramatic moment for me. Um, because you drive along these back roads and you do see a lot of trees, but they're almost every single one of them is is second growth, replanted in 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 the past hundred years, um, and that, that that was a pretty shocking moment for me. And and then you start to realize that the patches of old growth forest, like the one that once surrounded Big Lonely Doug was, you know, there are these tiny little strips down a creek, or they're, uh, it's it's like it really is, as as the activists say, a, a cherry on the cake that's left.
1: Mm. There's a really striking quote in this book from David Suzuki, mm-hmm. one of the good Ds, <laughs> um, where he says, environmentalism is dead. Yeah. What is your take on that you quote? He got a lot of flack
2: for that. Um, I think he was having a bad day. Uh, I think that was... An like honest a, day. Yeah, well, maybe <laughs> an honest day. I think environmentalism is changing a lot. Um, you know, the old style environmentalism that I was... And I'll, maybe I'll speak about old growth environmentalism, but... Mm-hmm. Um, that I kind of grew up on going to those protests and going to Carmana and seeing those battlegrounds. And that is changing. You know, we don't really see those protests anymore. We don't really see people chaining themselves across a a logging road and blockading. We're seeing uh, much more, in my mind, kind of creative forms of activism. And that is, you know, one of the examples that I mentioned is is going out and finding these trees, and the marketing is something that I find really fascinating and, and Big Lonely Doug, you know, uh, exists. You know, the, the single tree in the cut block is a single tree in a cut block. Big Lonely Doug is a marketing tool. It was an icon created by these activists for a very specific purpose. And um, so that's what we're starting to see is a, is a much, you know, it, some people might call it kind of sinister. It's like much more kind of underground, uh, but I think it's much more creative. And it's less, you don't really see the direct action that we used to see. Um, and one of, their, one of their tactics is to find these trees, find these groves, and turn them into spaces that want to attract tourists. And if you get boots on the ground, you get people caring about them, you get people talking about the story, you get people coming back, and in their mind, that will act as a deterrent uh, for the logging companies. Um, so, and we, sometimes they appear naturally, uh, sometimes they're embodied in a person. You know, uh, Paul Watson, the head of, um, like, the star of uh, water, uh, Whale Wars and, what? Whale Wars? Yeah, yeah. And, like, even, even Rob Stewart uh, of Sharkwater, the, his new is out. Like, there was so much embodied in those people, the activists themselves. There's so much power in who they were in their work. But sometimes you see icons emerge or are built um, unwittingly. You know, Dennis Cronin didn't set out to build an environmentalist icon. He didn't set out to save a bunch of trees and create a, a monument. Um, but sometimes we see it emerge. This great example uh, was this past summer with that, that incredibly profound and devastating image of the mother orca carrying her calf uh, around the waters of BC and Washington State uh, after a calf had, had died. And she carried it for 17 days before finally letting go. And that one moment uh, became an icon for the southern resident orcas, completely unwittingly. Of course, she didn't know what she was doing. We created that. We, the New York Times reporters put it on, on uh, wrote about it. Everybody was writing about it. But, but these icons are, are so important now, because there's so much power, whether they want to be or not. Um, Uh, I promise you that more people uh, learned about the plight of the Southern Resident orca, the fact that there's 74 left in in the world, uh, from that one sad, unwitting icon, uh, that one moment for 17 days, than any textbook about uh, whales. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're starting to see that kind of activism. Uh, It's much more creative. It's looking for those icons that you can turn into a story that's gonna grab people's attention. but it's also looking for new opportunities, and and businesses are are the kind of new alliance that the activists are trying to court, uh, and they know that if you can switch, if you can switch the economics, uh, you can push the economics into a different uh, territory. Um, you can you can change people's mindsets. And so it's not blockading loggers to to uh, protect, uh, prevent them from getting to uh, their jobs, uh, their job sites. It's talking with businesses, trying to rely on trees left standing, not trees being cut down. Uh, and ecotourism is the obvious one. And Port Renfrew has benefited enormously from ecotourism p- purely on the backs of these big trees, rebranding itself as the tall tree capital of Canada. Um, so that's where that I see kind of the new activism. It's it's in these slightly more unlikely alliances. It's in finding icons that are going to resonate around the world. Uh, and it's a little bit less in that direct action of old that we've seen.
1: It's interesting because I think many people in this room, um, you mentioned that... Um the activism that, that you saw when you were younger, Klaquiat Sound, where 800 um, protesters were arrested um, for doing what you just mentioned, yeah. getting in the way of these loggers. Um, and I just immediately um, had a flashback of some of the direct action that has been going on in the waters with kayakers and shutting down, um, legitimately getting in the way um, for oil pipelines and of course, Standing Rock. And I think perhaps perhaps the future lies somewhere in the middle. Um, the exhibition here in effect on the planet. And perhaps it's not a change, but an alliance of all forms government, policy, business, money, direct action, environmentalists, and human beings. Um, I, mean, I, think it, I
2: think you're right. I think it has to be. Um, the challenge is getting there. Uh, and I think direct action works I- right now in certain contexts. And with the old growth forest, it's not. The preferred method right now, mm-hmm. um, and that's what a lot of the activists are struggling with on the coast, uh, and have been for for the, kind of the past decade, is we've seen this kind of fragmentation of causes out there with tankers and pipelines and uh, cut down, um, and these big umbrella issues with climate change and ocean, ocean acidification that are now kind of dominating the conversations, and for a long time there weren't a lot of people who were focused on the forests. And so they had to adjust. They had to find a new way. Uh, Where all the direct action focus was shifting over to something else, they had to find an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that direct action doesn't work in environmentalism anymore. It's that in this context, in this one place, in for this one cause, um, they're being much more, they're kind of coming in the back door. And that's a challenge because direct action can get results. We've seen it, as you said, in Standing Rock. Uh, and very immediate and you can get a very quick return. Um, and the challenge for the activists uh, with old growth forests uh, on the coast is that every day you take, every week you take, every month you take, every year that you push, uh, these trees continue to be cut down. Mm. Um, and it's not like you're protesting a pipeline where it's gonna be built in the future and you just have to get it by that date or you just have to you know, push for that court to make the decision. Uh, every hour that goes by Um, these trees are continued to be cut down. And so all the work that was done, you know, for example, Avatar Grove, uh, as they were working, fighting hard, 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 petitioning, rallying to get Avatar Grove protected, the forest around Big Lonely Dug was cut at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. And hundreds of other clear cuts, or uh, cut blocks just like it. So as you're fighting in the moment, when the direct action might work, um, and that's that kind of internal frustration with them is that they need to kind of broaden their tactics. You can't just blockade, you can't just do this. You have to have this whole spectrum of uh, approaches. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I do wanna open up the house for questions, but in the spirit of where we are at the Art Gallery of Ontario, I have to read this quote um, because I'm curious about Emily Carr, and she comes up several times, and the imagery comes up several times. And towards the end of the book, um, you quote her Emily Carr in her wanderings of Vancouver Island in search of landscapes to paint, called these remains screamers. They are the cry of the tree's heart, she wrote, wrenching and tearing and tearing apart just before she gives way, gives that sway and the dreadful groan of falling, that dreadful pause while her executioners step back. With their saws and axes resting and watch, it's a horrible sight to see a tree felled. Even now, though the stumps are gray, sticking up and out of their own tombstones, as it, tombstones as it were, they are there. They are their own tombstones and their own mourners.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, beautiful. Yeah, and I, I uh, you know, she obviously had had a strong voice in in her art and. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to include um, a little bit about her and her relationship uh, and what she wrote about and what she painted was that artists have had a strong environmental voice in this country for a long, long time. And, you know, when I mean, you look at her paintings, there is a message hidden in those greens and in those blues. Um, and, you know, there's this, I came across this one picture that uh, <laughs> and it's called Scorned as Timber Beloved of the Sky and it looks like Big Lonely Doug. It's, it was painted in 1935, and it's a single tree left standing, a single giant tree with this you know, crown of glossy needles um, uh, completely on its own in a cut block. And I saw that, and I was like, holy cow, that is Big Lonely Doug. And it was a very kind of prophetic moment, and she, um, and so many other artists were, were kind of integral to changing mindsets and helping reshape how we think about these forests. And even in the protests of, uh, during uh, the, the uh, Carmana Valley uh, action, uh, they intentionally brought these artists, this huge gaggle of very famous art- artists, Robert Bateman, and as a form of activism. So, you know, as some of you may have gone and seen, uh, you know, Edward Bertinsky's uh, exhibit here, uh, it's very similar. You get, you, you can see how important all different forms of activism are, whether that's taking a picture like TJ, uh, or Edward Bratinsky, or painting something like Emily Carr, or um, anyone, and it's it's it, it can be it can be such a powerful way to to spread to spread a, a message and to spread an issue. Um, writing's another one, I guess, um, and uh, I guess that's it. it. There's just there's so many different forms of of getting a message out there, and and uh, art has always been a big one for the for the West Coast trees for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for diving into this. I, I really enjoyed reading this book, and I really enjoy. I'm even more excited now to talk with all of you guys and Harley, but I have a, one last question for you. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what happened on Monday of last week?:
2: uh, uh, I got engaged.
1: Oh wow.. <laughs> And uh, I just saw a hand go up. I think your fiancé's here. I really love doing this. That's why. Congratulations, you guys. That's awesome. A book and a wedding to come. That's cause for celebration. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I, um, you're welcome for embarrassing you, and uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Let's open up the house for questions. Thank
2: you. Thank uh. you. Wonderful, uh, superb. I learned a lot. Um, what what does the future hold for Big Lonely Doug? And uh, uh, I, I don't want to bring any negative element into this, but um, ecotourism is a very beneficial. I recognize, but uh, just just wondering what the future holds for Big Lonely Big Lonely Doug in relation to ecotourism, and could I go and see the tree, sort of thing? And <laughs> yeah. sure. Um, uh, that's a good question, I, I, the future for Big Lonely Doug, as I guess there's a couple ways to answer that question. Um, he's going to be fine uh, as a tree, uh, I, that's my estimation. Um, when the images first came up, uh, everyone's first thought was that tree's going to get blown down. Uh, now it's isolated, it's, it's on its own, it's lost its forest buffer, it's going to get blown over in the wind. Um, and that was something that that Dennis Cronin shrugged off immediately he knew that this tree had survived uh, some pretty incredible storms that have have torn up this this landscape for uh, many many times over centuries and he noticed something very very specific and this is kind of a, a bit of a long story but uh, very specific in the age range of that particular forest that there was a bunch of big trees a cluster of really big old trees and then there was a gap in the age range and then there was the majority of the forest was about a hundred-year-old hemlock. And so what that signaled to him is that something happened about a hundred years ago that knocked down all the forest and all the trees, except for these giant, great, big trees. And then the forest regrew about a century ago. So there's a line in the people And <laughs> so it has, it has withstood, and I actually found, uh, there's a part in the book, right, uh, I find this... Um, the original document that described this hurricane-force wind that destroyed this, this forest. So it has withstood some pretty incredible storms for a long, long time. Its crown has stood above the canopy for a long time. Um, and the root systems of these big old Douglas firs go de- deep. They run deep. Um, so in terms, ecologically speaking, uh, I think it's going to be OK. Uh, in terms of the future of Big Lonely Doug as a destination and, and, and a, uh, an ecotourism, uh, a place for eco-tourism. Right now, every single time I go, I see people going out to see him. Um, I've been uh, dozens and dozens of times, and I'm constantly surprised by how many cars are going out. easy to get to. It's maybe uh, to, from Port Renfrew, which is a town that's about two hours up the coast on this beautiful coastal highway from Victoria. It's about a 15-minute drive outside of Port Renfrew, you can park your truck, you drive on a logging road for maybe 10 minutes, and then you walk up. And it's this really beautiful, dramatic walk. Uh, and uh, it's ter- it's being turned into uh, a recreational site, and uh, there is a chance that it could be turned into something that has even greater protection. Um, but the interesting point there is that the active or the loggers don't want it turned into a tourist destination because they're still logging in that area. They don't want tourists to drive, be driving their SUVs. Oh, the bridge over the Gordon River is—it's too weak. It's gonna—it's too dangerous for tourists to go, so nobody should go. Uh, and the only way that they were going to repair that bridge, ironically, was if they—if they opened up new cut blocks down the road from Big Lonely Dug. Uh, the last time I or the second last time I went over the summer, they had just repaired that bridge. They have just applied for new cut blocks uh, over the summer, and they couldn't cut them because of the fire ban, um, this winter they're probably coming down. Uh, so there's a lot of trees at the base of Edinburgh Mountain that are coming down. Turned into something, it is a tourist destination already, um, I'm always surprised by how many people are going and seeing it and taking pictures of it, um, and, uh, but who knows where, it, it's going to take a lot more, it's going to take, uh, the, kind of this alliance of all these different parties to turn it into anything like a provincial park or something like that, but. Do you have any other pictures besides this so we can see the top of Big Lonely Doug? I. <laughs> if
1: you purchase the book this yeah. evening, um, you can not only have... Actually, you know what? Hold on. Wait. Hold on. I'll, I'll show you how you can see it. Okay. Um, I got this book. Yeah, that's... I got this book, so you could sign it for me, and then um I noticed also in here there are oh look at that there are yeah. photos there's a lot, there's a great color the spread inside <laughs> sorry yeah I actually <laughs> really like this picture um
2: because it kind of tricks your eye. you don't yeah. actually know how big it is, mm-hmm. and your eye just kind of goes up and up and up and up and up um but it's 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 twenty stories tall, yeah, and you could just go check out some of the pictures in uh in the book there's a great little color spread in there
0: Hi there. Uh, I think you've touched on a lot of important notes about the importance of a forest. You've talked about culturally modified trees. You've talked about jobs in the forest through the industry. Um, Your book itself is printed on paper, and that comes from a tree. And so you've kind of pinpointed a lot of uh, values that the forest provides to us. And my question to you is, what do you think about the concept of this? Uh, responsible forestry through organizations like the Forest Stewardship Council, who are trying to provide more solutions to kind of harmonizing all of those different areas. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, Firstly, it's recycled paper, um, which is, uh, although I got a number of jokes saying that I should do a special edition made out of Big Lonely Doug, which is a little dark, but. uh, I, I, so the Forest Stewardship Council and those types of initiatives um, I think, they're, I think they're great to a point. Um, I think the future of, of these forests is finding compromises in a lot of different places. Uh, that's compromises politically, compromises within the industry, um, and compromises even within the activists. Uh, and so one of the big things that the activists are pushing right now is finding uh, essentially alternate sources of income within these forests. And so for uh, First Nation groups that we talked about, you know, a big a big thing that they're trying to push is for alternate sources of revenue, you know, whether that's mushroom hunting or or essentially just not cutting the trees down. A little bit of selective harvesting. Those alternate uh, revenue sources can provide some jobs, but it's not really going to match uh, timber. Uh, the biggest change that some of these organizations can be pushing for uh, is a retooling away from cutting down these big trees. Uh, and that's going to take... A huge investment. It's going to take a lot of push from these organizations um, to to inject money into these mills and into the industry to uh, change is it like literally retool the mills so that they can handle second-growth trees Um, because right now there is no shortage of second-growth trees uh, that we still need like we trees out of Douglas fir Um, and we can recycle some of it but uh, we're always going to need this resource, and so many jobs are still tied to it, that it's going to take not only a shift in mentality, but also a shift in the, the very practical ways that we're processing them. Um, there is a way to sustainably manage these forests and not cut down the greatest of the grade. Um, so I, I think it, it takes a lot of compromising, and the biggest challenge right now in BC is any kind of political will, uh, because for a long time the Liberal government really had no interest in in and they had so much interest in, in the uh, invested in the timber companies that they had no interest in in any kind of moratorium on old growth logging now there's a little bit of hope with the NDP kind of green alliance that's going on there but there hasn't been a lot of commitments from uh, from the, the premier or, or or the parties and uh, they're really really frustrated because they thought they were going to be coming out of the gate so that's the biggest hurdle in my mind and in a lot of people's minds is just
1: I think that was a lot of fun. I, yeah, while you're walking there, um, for me to find out too about um, the Art Gallery of Ontario and their history with Douglas fir, and if you listen to the podcast, the Anthropocene. Into the An- Anthropocene, we talk about it. So we talked to Rust, er, <laughs> to Harley. Do let's call you Rustad? We talk to Rustad as well.
0: <laughs> you spoke a lot about the different messaging and how you know environmental environmentalists have one message and. The, the various different groups and obviously writing uh, is a message I wanted to ask you what you you hope your main message to be for
2: readers um, I think my uh, my message I hope people t- sort of take away from it um, I think it's that that we should start seeing these big trees as the endangered species that they are um, it's It's very easy to to uh, rally a lot of people around uh, an animal. Uh, it's, a smile, they don't frown, uh, they just sit there. Uh, they don't run away. Um, they don't carry their young when they die. Uh, so it's, it's a lot more challenging to be able to uh, c- convince people that these are a, a, an object, an endangered species that's worth protecting. Um, so my hope, I think, is to not only kind of bring people to the forest of Vancouver Island that I grew up in uh, and to show how beautiful and how wonderful they are and how important they are ecologically um, to protect, um, but also that we are really getting to the end of this resource. Um, and that's the, that is that is these giant trees uh, in the old growth forest of Vancouver Island. Maybe not Doug, but to be able to interact with them and to be able to visit them. Um, I don't want to talk about them and show them pictures of these big trees uh, Like we do dodo birds. Like, it's just not an option for me. So, I think the biggest thing, like the image when I first saw Doug, uh, is just awe. And then it's curiosity. And then it's tell me a story about this. uh, And then it's go and visit it. Um, So, that's kind of my hope is that uh, everyone can see that image, have that same feeling that I had, which is wow, and then firsthand. And then, uh, and I think that's where a lot of activism starts is in those stories, in those images, in those moments where you see it firsthand. Um, so that's my hope. Go go see the tree.
1: Are there any more questions? Mm? Mm-hmm. There are two microphones coming at you.
0: <laughs> is the area where Doug is covered by treaty um, or is it unceded territory, as I believe much of British Columbia is? And also, what is the name of the logging company that is doing the logging in that area? I grew up in an area. Name Naimo. and shame. Pardon? Name, I said name and, and shame. shame. <laughs> um,
2: the, as you said, most of BC is unceded territory, and, and so the Apache Dat have... Uh, Their reserve lands, which is a very, very tiny, tiny territory, is a very, very large tract of land uh, that goes from just north of Victoria all the way up to the, around the bottom of Carmana Valley. It, if, it, there's a map in the book. With, I love maps. So it shows the, the unceded traditional territory of the Apache Dad. Um, so it falls on that uh, in there. Uh, and sorry, second, oh yeah, name and shame. Uh, the company is called Teal Jones Cedar. They're based out of, out of uh, Surrey and they work predominantly uh, in, in these, the old-growth forests on, on the island, a little bit on the mainland. Um, they are, in some ways, a pretty classic timber company. They've been around for a while. Um, they cut old-growth. The one thing they don't do, which I find quite interesting, is they don't export raw logs. Now, that, and that's a different issue that we haven't quite talked about, and that's one of the big uh, issues out there is that um, forever, for 100 years, as long as commercial um, timber harvesting has happened on the, on the coast, there was this law, there was a part uh, in the Forest Act that, that required, had to build, they had a legal requirement to build a mill, and to build a sawmill, and to build a pulp mill within each community within their area. And what that meant is that they were not only uh, extracting the resource, but they were building these, these communities literally out of the bush, carving them out of the bush. And so many of these, Mill Bay is one, obviously, named after Mill, but Port Renfrew is one of them, Lake Couchin, where Dennis lived, is one of them. Um, In 2003, that law was removed. And so what that meant is that the timber companies had no requirement to invest in the communities anymore. And what they could do then is ship raw logs, export them abroad, uh, without adding any kind of value locally, truck take it to the mill it would be debarked it would be sliced up it would be sold everything Um, with a number of jobs along the way right now it gets put on a truck it gets taken to the nearest body of water gets dumped into the water and it gets boomed and it's going across the Pacific or it's going down to the states very quickly Uh, what that has meant for a lot of these communities is that mills are vanishing on Vancouver Island Uh, there's been hundreds of mill closures in in the past uh, about 15 years uh, thousands and thousands of jobs. So Teal Jones uh, is one of the companies that has, it has made one commitment and their commitment is they're not going to export raw logs. So all of their locally but they're taken to Surrey and processed. A lot of the other timber companies are doing exactly what I described. And the downside of that is is a massive amount of job losses. And there's an interesting tension there because a lot of the loggers will blame that on the activists. That they are taking trees away that, from us that we can't cut and that's why we're losing jobs when really it was politics that changed this and greed from the top. Uh, and that's the really kind of devastating thing about there and uh, out there. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: The other thing that made me think of, I think that there, if there's any questions, think of them now, as your chance. Um, and I'll ask you quickly too, is that in the subject of naming, um, the Douglas fir is also not what that tree is called, huh?
2: Uh, it's a Douglas fir. It's just not a fir. Um, yeah, yeah. It's there's a, <laughs> a whole part of the book where I get into the, um, the really fascinating backstory with these like crazy intrepid Scottish naturalists who were sent to the farthest reaches of the world to just like find things and name them and unfortunately kill a lot of animals and and cut down a lot of plants and pick a lot of flowers. Um, but yeah, it's, it went through, you know, it's a like great example of, of, like, the weird world of taxonomy. It went through so many different names over the years, and, and uh, yeah, so it was a common name. Douglas Fir is named after this Scottish guy, David Douglas, who wasn't the first person to find it. Anyway, you should read the book. It's really fascinating. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but
2: it's not, a, it's not a true fir, that's the point. It's, it's an imposter, yeah.
1: Great, last question.
0: Hi, um, I'm not sure, maybe it's a silly question, but the land belongs to the government as of now, right? Can people, the population, us, purchase the land, make an offer, a better offer if people put them together? I know you're not gonna get a tree out of it for yourself, but you'll get a portion of land and the money goes towards uh, safekeeping. We did it in Holland, that's why I'm asking, because it actually happened in Holland as well when my mother purchased land she'll never get something out of it but she made sure that her amongst you know 50,000 dutch people saved a partial that's not for um milling i don't know uh, yeah. Right. yeah logging
2: in um, in bc the majority of the land is is crown land it's not privately owned crown land is owned by the government um kind of owned by us already like we uh, uh, and we are allowed certain rights to that land under these colonial uh, rules that were put down. We're allowed to go and... We're actually allowed to harvest trees out of them. We're allowed to collect firewood. There's all these There's all these different rules. Um, we're allowed to camp freely on crown land uh, for a certain amount of time. Um, so the answer is no, essentially. Uh, you can't really buy it from the government. Um, the crown land is for everybody. Uh, but how it works in BC is that Uh, The crown, the BC government, leases the land to the timber companies on these 25-year leases. So they will uh, lease the right to cut the trees uh, for a certain period of time. They'll go in, they'll cut the trees, and what the BC government gets out of that is a stumpage fee. So for every tree that gets cut, uh, the the BC government gets a certain percentage of that, uh, which is why they have a vested interest in keeping this industry going. so unfortunately, not really. Uh, I don't know what the situation is like in Holland, but um, uh, to my knowledge, I don't think a, a private citizen can go and just buy up crown land. Um, but uh, I, I would say probably the better tactic is going through uh, the courts and the, the essentially the indigenous pressure, um, taking back that land from the government through these treaties, uh, is probably the better way to to uh, have people that are, are managing it better than the timber companies.
1: Every time I think I have to interrupt you, you say it. Hmm. That's such a refreshing experience in a settler, indigenous <laughs> conversation. Although I'm assuming, I'm assuming settler. Yeah, okay, cool. Um,
2: Scottish, yeah. Yeah, yeah cool, Norwegian. great,
1: good, here we go. Um, just to follow up on that too, uh, You know, to be absolutely fair, the, a wonderful and incredible thing that you guys could all do in this room is honor the treaties. And essentially, if we honor the treaties, then crown land is not actually government land. Crown land was unceded territory. And so if you're honoring treaties, there's no civil jewels own indigenous land and parks. <laughs> the, 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 that's just it. Like they're, they're <laughs> um, And so. Putting this land back in the hands of indigenous people means that even if they chose to selectively harvest it, my, my thought is that generally we would be in a much, much better place than for it to be in commercial hands. So honor the treaties. It's like simple. Yeah, simple. Thank you so much, Harley. So it was been an absolute me. pleasure. Everyone, please uh, start the line.
0: Thank you.